Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. It's time for another book club. And today we're discussing Kia Brown's The Pretty One on Life, Pop Culture, Disability, and Other Reasons to Fall in Love with Me. And Kia Brown is a disability activist and is also behind the viral hashtag Disabled and Cute. The book is a series of essays on various topics ranging from chairs to jealousy to ponytails to music to friendships to love, all through the lens of a Black woman with a disability. And she's very, very open about her anxiety, depression, disordered eating, suicidal thoughts. And that being said, because that's kind of a laundry list of like upsetting topics at the end that I put in there, <laughs> but it is immediately delightful. Like I was drawn in from like the forward, oh, this sounds like a, a really fun person who's just right. bright and interesting and lovely and delightful. She opens up about her love of pop culture, of music and TV and books. That's something that returns throughout, which is also something that we can relate to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the whole book is brimming with pop culture references, some of which we'll be talking about later. Yeah, it's often very infectiously joyous. It, this book definitely does not shy away from difficult topics at all. But I just found myself just kind of feeling this bubbling happiness a lot while right. I was reading it. Right. I just love her honesty in all of it, uh, as well as the fact that she does do a lot of the pop culture references that I know very well. Like, she immediately talked about Cinderella, Brandy's Cinderella, yes. and I was so excited. I was like, yes, I get what you're coming from. This is the Cinderella, <laughs> as it should be. And yes. I absolutely feel like, yes, these are the reasons she lists and just her personality alone that comes off of the book reasons to fall in love with her. And I'm like, can we be friends? I mm -hmm. want to be your friend. But it's okay because you got lots of friends. Uh, but just go ahead and start off with a quote from the book. I never thought anyone would want to hear what I had to say until I started telling stories and talking about the things and people that matter to me. The truth is this. I've always felt average, plain, and wrong, but there's nothing average, plain, or wrong about me, and it took me only half my life so far to figure that out. I wrote an entire book, and you are gearing up to read it. How cool is that? So cool. Sometimes it is beautiful to prove yourself wrong. Ugh, love that. Yeah, and that captures so much of what this book is, and I do legitimately feel like that is beautiful. And I think a lot of us, especially anybody from any type of marginalized community, can relate to that feeling of like, I don't have anything interesting to say, or I'm just average, or I'm just plain, or what what have you. And when you unlearn that and start to see the good things in you, which is it really difficult work and can be exhausting, I think that's really powerful. And that is at the heart of a lot of this book. And speaking of, like when it comes to themes, one of the main ones is this theme of self-acceptance and Kia Brown finding this self-acceptance, the roadblocks along the way, the, the obstacles, and then the beauty of it, like all the things she's discovered about herself that she loves. And I think that's, that's really, it's nice too. It's refreshing as someone who's been thinking a lot, and I, I bet a lot of us have, my negative self-talk is off the chain. Like right, sometimes I'll be shocked that I would even think that about myself. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> right. And I know for 
a while growing up, and we've talked about this in past book clubs, actually, for women, a lot of what we would hold up as laudable or this is a good trait is like selflessness or being humble and all these things. I thought it was really refreshing to hear someone be like, you know what? I love this about myself and this is right. great about myself. Right. There was no part of me that was like, oh, she's bragging. I wish she was tough. It was just like nice. It was right. nice. And it was genuine. I think it's one of those things that's rare that you hear so many people trying to convince themselves. Yes. yes. That's how they feel. And over to the point that it's overcompensating to a uh, this is weird. This is not, I'm not sure right. you really truly believe this. And she's gotten to a point which most people never get to in, mm-hmm. in being able to really be genuinely say, this is what I'm proud of and this is who I am. And, and it's still, I'm still got a lot to learn, but this mm-hmm. is what I do know that I love about myself. And, and that's yeah. a beautiful, refreshing thing to see as well as a place where for the longest time she feared herself. Mm-hmm. And she even talks about it in the aspects of different people's perspective, as in like she's talking about her sister, learning that for Mm -hmm. herself as well. And I I found that really nice to see, like she does spread that beyond because as we're going to talk about later, her relationship with her sister is complicated. Yeah. But beautiful and and not so uncommon. Mm -hmm. I found that very interesting as well. Yeah. So here's another quote. My point is that I do all these things in a disabled body, not because I am brave or bold, but because I like doing them and I would love doing them in any body. I adapt to the world because I have to do so in order to live. My disability is cerebral palsy and it affects the right side of my body, effectively altering my motor skills and reaction time as well as the strength of my bones on that side. I don't do things in spite of anything, except for maybe the people who told me I'd be nothing and no one. I don't mind being an inspiration if it is for a valid reason, such as admiring how many slices of pizza I ate, an essay or an article I wrote, my clothing choices, or how quickly I can learn the lyrics to a song. As long as the inspiration doesn't come with pity or self-congratulatory pats on the back, I am all for it. Let my love of cheesecake inspire you the way it will one day inspire a nation. <laughs> Look, her lipstick game is on point. Uh, yes. Whenever I see her on Twitter, whenever she posts the pictures, I'm like, yeah, that color is amazing. Mm-hmm. How did you find this color and give me it? Yes. And I think this, all of this was so, so well written because we're going to talk about uh, in a minute, um, ableism and how that's impacted like all of us, but in this case, Kia Brown and having people kind of using you for inspiration porn. Right. And I feel like that is something that we see a lot in entertainment. And we see it a lot more for <laughs> philanthropy. They want to say they're giving. Mm. And so they're videotaping themselves giving money to the homeless. They're videotaping themselves doing these things. That is, to me, the most irksome Mm -hmm. thing that I think I've seen in a long time. And really having people going, God bless you. You did such a great thing. You're You're such an amazing person for recognizing this. And it's kind of gross to that. Yeah, you are absolutely dismissing that other person as if it's a dog needing to be rescued. Like, there's this whole level right. of inhumane tactics that get mm-hmm. mistaken for philanthropy. And I don't quite get it. It makes me really uncomfortable. Again, maybe it's just been in my, the world where people who are going through things like this often don't realize that it's seen as a negative thing. So kind of that same route of like, this has been my life. Right. Why are you pitying me? This is weird. As well right. as to them, it's, it is a barrier, but it's not a barrier. It's something that's just a part of who they are. And 
Why are you commenting on it? And why are you feeling sorry for me? And or why are you berating me for it? It's kind of this, again, like I don't quite get it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, and she doesn't talk about that level, but it, it's that level of like that pity. Same thing with like the healing and the regular, yeah. which I know we're going to talk about more and, and the religious aspect of it all. It's really like unfortunate that that's one more added thing. Mm-hmm. That whether if you truly believe there are hurdles that there are people are having to do that you do not have to, that's amazing. Why are you making it more difficult by mm-hmm. bringing this onslaught of randomness and attention that they don't necessarily want nor need? I know people feel really comfortable approaching others about, especially in this case, like disability, but also, I mean, we've talked about before with weight, like people yeah. feel like they can just come up and and give people advice or, or right. just like you wouldn't do they it. Need Why to be would you saved. do that? <laughs> they need to right. be saved and that they are doing something that's going to be heroic. And you kind of just like, that's not my whole concept of white savior thing. And this is kind of, this is not necessarily about race at all, but in general, just that overall, I have to rescue them, but they don't think they need to be rescued. So what are you doing? What is it called? If you're doing it to gratify your own conscience. Yeah. Or And or your own uh, ego. Right. But yeah, I really am glad to see. She actually addresses that in such a great way. Mm-hmm. But moving on to the different quote. My disability is not a thing to see past, but instead a thing to acknowledge and accept before able-bodied people. And I continue existing at the same time in this world. I have both physical and invisible disabilities, and I refuse to be ashamed of them because they are beautiful in their uniqueness and their familiarity. They're mine, but they also belong to a world of others, and that makes them worthy of my appreciation and acceptance. And uh, yeah, I think she does a great job in talking about both of those things because she also wants to acknowledge invisible disability, which yep. has been a thing for a long time mm-hmm. and not recognized enough yep. to the point that we've seen people harass people for parking in handicapped spots because they don't see yeah. a physical mm-hmm. disability. And you're like, oh, you don't know what's going on. Calm right. the down. This is not about you. Yeah. Um, and you can see a past episode Eves did on Sminty uh, before Female First. She came on and talked about invisible disabilities. It was great. It was really eye-opening for me. And I was like, oh, wait, I have a visible disability. (laughs) Whoa. Because, yeah, we don't talk about it enough. And I think this is another thing that uh, we do, I have, I guess I won't speak for a lot of people, but I have internalized from media. I've consumed a lot of like feeling ashamed of your body if it's not, if it doesn't work in the quote normal way in whatever way that is. And it's only recently, I remember I told you, like I have these kind of runners bumps Mm -hmm. on my feet and I used to hate them and I thought they were so ugly. And now I'm like, you know what? That's a part of me. And it is something that I earned. (laughs) Like, I don't know. It's not the same as what, uh, what she's talking about exactly, but Kind of taking those things where you um, people might perceive them one way, but learning to appreciate them and they are a piece of, of what makes you you and what makes you unique. Mm-hmm. So she also writes, 
uh, this quote I love. Um, I am a black woman with cerebral palsy who loves herself, and most days that feels like a revolutionary act. It took a lot of work to get to this place, a fountain of tears, grief, and loss, but I'm here, and it is beautiful. And I want to include that one because I think we've talked about that before, where Bridget used the phrase once, I'd never heard anyone use it, but like radical self-love. And it, like we were talking about, it can be so difficult to to love yourself, especially outside of like the white cis male when they're just like factors, all these intersecting factors against you, against you and heavy quotes in society of like, society doesn't seem to love you. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, or value you for whatever reason. And it, that can be really difficult to to do that yourself in the face of that. So I just really, again, I really appreciated that. And I do I do think that it's hard, but beautiful. You can. Yep. Agreed. Yeah. She goes on to write, I refuse to be a reminder of someone's worst case scenario again. If you need me to be a reminder, I will be a reminder that things will get better. I will be a reminder that people like me exist and thrive and that we aren't going anywhere. Long gone are the days of silence and complacency. I will see and be seen. I no longer care about the comfort of those who would rather I be quiet or wait my turn for proper and positive representation in our culture and mainstream media. Disabled people are at once invisible and a burden. And yeah, I think she explains that and writes about that in her experience with people feeling uncomfortable and and feeling like, like maybe that's the reason they come up and give you unsolicited advice right. or whatever it is. Like their comfort is more important than you just being existing and being left alone, which is something that we do see. But at the same time, kind of the, yeah, being invisible in in a society that where you still fight for like access and ADA and... There were a lot of things she wrote about that I kind of were eye-opening for me of like, wow, I really do take that for granted. Like doing my hair like in a ponytail or not having to worry so much about a chair situation or right. things like that. I just love the way she wrote about them, but it can be a good way to describe it, especially in what I've seen in media of like the invisible and a burden. Right. Which is not great. Which um, actually has been, I think, a controversy because recently an article was written in the perspective of the caregiver and about them not being paid. And although the article, I think, was implying that it needed help and more assistance and we should think about the caregivers as being professional and, and paying them as such, but it came off really ableist and dismissing uh, the disabled partner and being like, hey, you're really talking about us as if we're burdens, as if we're not existing. Right. You're acting as we're, we're infants. Yeah. And it was really like, oh, yeah, this is really bad. And something needs to change because this is someone who thought she was helping, but yeah. instead just came on with more ableist tone. And again, this is kind of that whole level of like, you're. this is the worst case scenario. This is where you're telling me I'm a burden. And I've right. already felt like that my entire life. Thank you for once again, again, invalidating my existence mm-hmm. when I have fought hard to get to this point. And yeah, I feel like there was so much like, oh God, please stop doing this. We have to do better as advocates and allies. We have to do better in keeping ourselves accountable and understanding 
the language, that pity language is damaging in Mm -hmm. every damn way. And again, this whole heroism thing that I don't quite understand, I I can't let go of it. And I'll probably, especially when we talk about religion, Mm -hmm. can't get past this whole level of like, this is my philanthropy, pat me on the back. Look, I'm caring for someone who is disabled. Aren't I the bigger person? And you're kind of like, no, what is wrong with you? This is gross. Like, don't do it. If this is your attitude, just please don't. I have a feeling that the individuals who are under your care would rather you be here because you love them and don't see them as a burden Mm -hmm. than trying to create a narrative as if you are the hero. Yeah, yeah. Like using other people to make yourself feel better. It's a weird white knight thing that just. Yeah, but again, like this kind of reminded me of that. Of like, this is what she's talking about. And seeing as a burden, like we need to change. But yeah, as this was written, this was a couple of years ago. And I really hate that we're still here. Like, I think we finally, and maybe it's just because we are recognizing it because of what we do. But there are so many who continue to say the same. And by the way, some of the biggest advocates for disability, for those who are disabled, are disabled people. Like they are the biggest and the loudest voices we should be listening, but have been doing the work to begin with. So let's not Mm -hmm. forget that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Done with rant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that because we're... It's true. It's not. It's not. We're moving into uh, some discussion around ableism, some more discussion around ableism, because, you know, as I said, self-acceptance is a lot of the heart of this book, but the flip side of that is... The, the years of self-hatred and all of the obstacles that were in the way for Kia Brown to arrive at this point. And it, it did take her several, several years and a lot of hard work. And yeah, a big part of that was ableism, some of it internalized. And she talked about in her family, I think she did a really good job talking about the pros and cons of this, but in her family, they never really brought up her disability, it wasn't really a thing. Uh, it wasn't really discussed. And when she was made fun of by a kid from school um, at a pretty young age, that was like her, her first time of thinking, oh, there's something heavy quotes wrong or different about me. Right. And people are making fun of it. And I mean, it wasn't funny, but I I feel like we all do this where like she remembers that kid's name. Right. I thought the same. Yeah. And she was like, he probably never, you know, doesn't know my name, maybe never thinks about it. Maybe he's a great person now. But like this event was huge for me. And I feel like I have kids like that from my past too. I'm like, right. I can't forget your name. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. So-and-so you did this. And it is. It was a kind of fun shade. Like she also recognizes he was a child. Perhaps he's changed, Mm -hmm. but she's not going to let go of the fact that you are the reason that I started doubting myself and not understanding how I was different until you brought that point out. Yeah, and she did did talk about the family dynamic, and and I can understand to a certain degree of the insulation of Mm -hmm. being told, you fit in, you fit in, you fit in, you're part part of us, And, and, and it being true because that's what I felt, and then going outside of that world realizing, no, this is not true. This is mm-hmm. not true. I'm very much an other. And these strangers have pointed it out to me a lot. And there's nothing I can deny about that. And I wasn't prepared 
Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was loved because I was being so protected. It, it, is, right. that, it is that variability that is both good and bad. And of course, I've, if I was a parent, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know what to do. And mm-hmm. I would want the same level of protection in that too. But yeah, there is that pros and cons of it all being insulated. Of course, you know, she's able to say I had loving family who was there to do that for me. Right. But the problem is when I came out of that and was faced with that, I I wasn't prepared mm-hmm. to handle that at that point in time or or knew how to handle that completely. And yeah, there was a whole level. Again, school is cruel. And for those who yeah. are marginalized, even more so. And she definitely talks about the privilege she did have because she had a supportive family but yeah. the fact that she did not have that white privilege, she did not have the ableist privilege, like all of those things. She didn't have the uh, gender privilege. There are those things that was a shock and you have to work through. Yeah. And no one can really do it for you. And and that protection at least gives her, and it did for myself, some level of ground to be like, but that's not the truth. It can't be right because of this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's, that's the whole thing for sure. Um, and she she also writes, it's something that helped me because you and I have been struggling with this for a minute on this show in general. But she writes, I am a Black disabled woman. I am not handicapped, differently abled, special needs, or any other iteration of disabled that says anything but the word disabled. When I say as much, I'm speaking for myself and myself alone. My thoughts on the matter are not the case for every person with disabilities because we are not monolithic. Some people like or use the terms above, but I do not. What I'm about to say might make some of you uncomfortable, but discomfort is imperative here. Discomfort has made a lot of things better in the long run. When I stopped caring about the comfort of able-bodied people with regard to the language used about my disability, I felt free for the first time in my life. You see, These other synonyms for disability were created because the word disabled often makes able-bodied people more uncomfortable than it makes those of us with disabilities. And I think that was huge because you and I have gone back and forth, Annie, on, okay, we want to highlight and and, and bring out, especially with our women around the world who are strong advocates and fighters and recognize these people who have done so many amazing things in making change, whether it's in the UN, whether it's in the US, whether it's like just in cultural altogether. And I think it's so important that we do talk about these things. But as able-bodied people, we are very, very wary of the connotations of language. Yes. And again, she says this for herself. So Mm -hmm. disabled for her is fine. And we will absolutely recognize anyone who says otherwise and says, please say this instead then we would definitely recognize it. But it is, you have to remember language is important and yeah. why it is. And again, you have to also figure out for yourself why you're uncomfortable. And if you are the ally and not the disabled individual, mm-hmm. don't just rely on yourself. Listen, we have, <laughs> yes. to, we have to listen. That's the other part to that. And I also love that she does talk about that for her, when she hears people saying things like handicapable, it's typically those who are caretakers who say that. Right and not the individuals, because again, they are uncomfortable or they feel like it's a failure to say otherwise. So we have to recognize we need to talk to the source, research the source, make sure we understand they're coming from. 
such a uh, language in itself is so important. Yes, I love that too, because we have been discussing that and we never want to not talk about something because we're too afraid to like use the incorrect language, but we do want to get it right and we want to like not be offensive and be up to date, but I just really appreciated this. And I remember back when Eves came on and we did that episode, she was talking about, yeah, there's, you know, debate in the community about which term is is a better term or which way is better and that debate is healthy and ongoing. Right. Yeah. So that that's good to know. I did like reading this. It does remind me of what we were talking about earlier of, yeah, kind of the inspiration porn aspects. And we see this a lot where it is usually not the, the community in question using right. the term. Unless it's somebody trying to make money. But that's, I'm thinking more widely of like, when we had um, Amanda, she was talking about like entrepreneur, you know, these kind of words that are usually in this case used to sell something. Right. I feel like there's also an aspect of that discomfort and trying to, for the person using that term, and these are generalizations, can't speak for everybody who uses handy capable, for instance, but it feels like a lot of times it is someone who is has their own, it's not internalized, but I mean, no, like they feel, they do think something is wrong or like you are the worst case scenario and they're trying to like build you up. <laughs> like they think you're doing, they're doing you a favor by using this terminology. Yeah, I, I feel like we see similar conversations happening in a lot of communities, but language is very, very, very important. So... Yeah, I was really happy that that was in there too. Here's another quote. What I didn't know earlier, but I'm grateful that I know now is that my cerebral palsy is an integral part of who I am and how I navigate the world. In my refusal to acknowledge this, I was denying the world and myself a glimpse of who I really am. All that time wasted hiding away when I could have embraced my girl CP and the word disabled and found unapologetic happiness sooner. I was embarrassed of disability, of being disabled and of other disabled people. My thought processes were that if able-bodied people discussed my disability, then they would see me as inferior. And I already saw myself as inferior. I didn't want them to as well. I would rather have been ignored than pitied, but I was never ignored, not then or now. The only thing that has changed is the way I feel about myself. Pity was my greatest fear and my biggest foe. And now I can confidently say that I do not care about it because I know how I feel about myself. And that encompasses a lot in that one quote, but also in the book and the struggle with, especially when she was younger, of feeling this self-hatred and shame around it and just like wishing she didn't have cerebral palsy. And that's something else that she does that I love. She talks about cerebral palsy like it's a character, like a person, right. uh, my girl CP. And she's open about like, you know, some days she's a real bitch and I hate her. Like some days yeah. there's no reason for why this is happening. I can't figure it out. But, you know, other times it's like, yeah, this is a part of me and I, it's it's made me who I am. And I think that's that was really nice too and really refreshing because it's, it's like a relationship. It's like, you know, it changes some days. <laughs> you got your ups right. and downs, your ebbs and flows. And I think we can say that for most things. And, and I question too, like, for myself, there's many things that I don't like. And growing up in all white communities, really hated being Asian. I really hated being brown, really hate my eyes. And even to this day, I don't necessarily love 
my identity, my ethnicity. Part of that's because I don't know it. Part of that is trying to discover that. But I think I'm in a healthier place because I don't necessarily love it, but I accept it. And I mm-hmm. accept my differences. And just encompassing that in my life. So there's definitely a whole process in acceptance and then moving on to love. And what that looks like for me is different, obviously. And this is a whole different level because obviously she has a lot of pain that I don't, literal physical pain that she has to mm-hmm. deal with and and, and uh, face every day. But it is an interesting concept of what it is to fall in love with something that is a difference mm-hmm. than what is deemed as normal, which... Mm-hmm. Ugh, whatever that is. Yeah. And I've been kind of harping about it already and I'm ready to talk about it now is that whole idea of like unsolicited advice and this whole, that whole thing like of cures, whether it's prayer yeah. And yeah. or marathons trying to raise money. And and not that we don't necessarily think cures are bad. I definitely don't. But I think there's a whole level of when you talk about cures, thinking about something as an enemy. And so those people who are dealing with that in their life, feeling that they're, that means they are the enemy. So yeah. there's a whole lot of things. But uh, here's another quote. A recent study found that a disabled person is killed once a week by a family member or other caregivers. There are 52 weeks in a year and a disabled human is murdered at least once every week, yet there's hardly any coverage or outrage about it. These stories are often framed in two ways. The killers just couldn't take it anymore, finding the caretaking too much for them to deal with, or they were just trying to set the disabled person free because their faith told them that their loved ones could be free of disability and death. And yeah, we have constantly seen this whole narrative. And don't get me wrong, I think for those who, again, I kind of mentioned that story about the fact the caregivers were being highlighted as heroes and and seen as the disabled member, uh, family member being the burden. But this whole level that it is a death sentence in itself mm. is so tragic in so many ways. And I can't, and we don't, we don't talk about this enough. We don't talk about this. We have talked about that the fact that the statistics for abuse in those in the disabled communities are much higher. Poverty yeah. level, death rates, uh, sexual abuse, sexual violence is higher than the mm-hmm. uh, able community. And we really have to keep mentioning this conversation because nobody protects them. And, and this absolutely is a horror. But the fact that there's no law that goes beyond the regular, I guess, uh, yeah. statements. And that you, we already know is hard to prove. Uh-huh. There's so many ways, like this this type of crimes against humanity is really hard to prove. And it is a horrifying thing that we are not talking more of it. But yeah, also this weird narrative because it's in books, because it's in movies, that the caretakers who do these things are heroes and had to choose because they're suffering. And it's like, no, if it's not the disabled person's choice to, you know, say that they don't want you to revive them or something... Yeah. That's not that's not that's not what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. 
And we've been talking a lot about entertainment. As we said, that is key throughout this book. We're going to talk about it more in a little bit. But that's something I don't think we've ever, we've touched on like tangentially a lot, but I don't think we've ever directly discussed. But that's, as you know, we love horror. I love horror movies. But that's a big problem in horror movies, I feel like, is someone with a disability, whether it's invisible or not, is in one way or the other, the villain. Or something is wrong with them. Or in some cases, this kind of thing happens where somebody will kill the disabled person to start off the plot, which is not great either. (laughs) That's like what we talk about when we're talking about fridging of women or the barrier gaze trope. It's the same kind of thing. But yeah, a lot of the... When she was talking about entertainment, there was a whole chapter kind of devoted to Mm -hmm. representation and entertainment. That's one of the things that kept coming back to me is like all of these examples I had. Of she was she was good and she pointed out a lot of times it's like sad, usually white men hating themselves and wanting to be quote right. cured. Right. Or yeah, the villain. But I have seen this, I've seen this plot line as well, for sure. Right. And I think she also talks about that there's not enough representation within any any I don't know if I've seen one. Yeah. Uh I think the only closest one that I have is that in Glee, not the guy Kevin, I think that's his name. I forgot the character's name. He's in a wheelchair, but he's not actually disabled because he has a mm-hmm. whole scene dancing. But they bring on a love interest who is, and she is actually disabled. But even mm-hmm. then, and her character was fun because she got to be sassy and she got to be uh, pretty much the thing. And she was <laughs> she was killing it with her style. But the whole level was like people pairing the two of them together since they are both in wheelchairs. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah. okay, see, you're doing it again. Even though you brought finally brought uh, someone on who can be a representative mm-hmm. because they actually are in a wheelchair and are disabled, you're pairing them up with a one. And that's the only plot line you're giving her. Why? Right. As where you have the other dude, Arnie, I think is his name. He is pretty much until towards the end of it where he actually accepts it because of his parents, is trying to find a cure. And that's the whole point. That's the whole plot point to the point that one of his girlfriends wishes it for Christmas and because he doesn't get it, she doesn't believe in Santa Claus. So like, it's just, why? And that is very ableist. And we follow along with it thinking, oh, of course, this is what being disabled looks like, being sad all the time. And it's not, it's not yeah. that case. And shame on well, us for thinking yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, well, and and she, she talks about that too. It's like one of the other kind of frequent tropes is... Um, like the sad teenage movie where one of them has some illness or disability that will kill them in the end, or they decide that they would right. rather die than go on. Right. Which, yeah, is... <laughs> I didn't know exactly what she's talking about. That's a very right. common trope. And that's one of the reasons she wrote this book, and she was like, you know, we can have other things in tragedy. It's not just tragedy. <laughs> and that's sort of... We talked about that vaguely in like a happy hour forever ago where I was saying, you know, if that's the only representation you have and, you know, those sure tragedy and sadness exist in like any community, but if that's all you see, then that's not accurate. That's not great representation. So she goes on, here's another quote, disabled people do not need strangers or people we do not know telling us how we should try to fix or change our bodies when we never said we had a problem with our bodies in the first place. 
We are not problems. We are people who deserve the same rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as everyone else. The fight for change is not ours alone. We need to end the constant cure narratives ingrained and championed within our culture. We need to end the just kidding, you were never sick narratives, the death means freedom from disability narratives, and the idea that if the body is not 100% able all of the time, it is to be pitied and dismissed while simultaneously being molded into something it can never be. Which is great. There's so much in there that um, she expounds upon in, in the book, but like she does, she points out, which she shouldn't have to, but yeah, like you can have a disability for a short time. Um, like, so if you like break a leg or something, then suddenly that access will be very important to you, right? Right. And then it's not exactly the same thing, but when my dad was dying, I remember so many well-meaning people, and I truly believe they were well-meaning, but it, it did make them uncomfortable. They were talking to someone who's dying and in pain. They would say things like, you know, basically kind of religious, usually, uh, just pray, it'll, you know, things will get better. If you do good, you'll, you'll get better. And it would just, he would be so furious. Like, yeah. And he, you know, people would come up and be like, I've read the other day, if you go to Mexico and they have XYZ, there's this cure for cancer. I kind of, I get the knee jerk, like impulse in this case, but you're, you're essentially like implying that this person who's dying didn't look into those things or either was just like, you were the one that had the answer. Right. And good luck with that. <laughs> this is the most infuriating and I'm not going to lie. It's one of the reasons I think I stopped being as religious as I was, that that narrative in itself implied that God cared more for another than this one. So if you were cured, that means Jesus really loved you. Um, if mm -hmm. you're not cured, well, that's Jesus's plan. That means you're probably going to hell, right? That think, which is not what they, they would never say that, but that's the implication mm -hmm. to me. And I could not grasp that concept. I'm like, do you really think you're that important? Yeah. That somehow a deity mm -hmm. of billions of people thought you were special and therefore <laughs> cured you. And not to dismiss those who may have gone through something they feel like it was a miracle. Wonderful. But the fact of the matter is that narrative does imply a hierarchy of those who are healed and those who are not, as yeah. well as those who are chosen and those who are not. And that woman who came up to her and said, I'm praying for a cure for you, f*** you. And this, like, that's what I would said. She was much nicer yeah. and apparently in shock. But in my mind, I was like, how dare you come at yeah. me implying that God doesn't love me if something doesn't happen? How dare you? Especially she who is a religious woman and has finally, as she says in the book, come to have one of the best relationships in a long time in her religious beliefs. How dare you imply because it's not your standard that perhaps God doesn't love me? Yeah. And she was a kid when this happened, by the way. <laughs> yeah. She was a teenager. And I was like, yeah. that is... That alone for me would have been enough to turn around and spit on somebody. Like, I, th I think mm -hmm. I would have been ready because this narrative is damaging in so many ways. And you're damaging other people who truly needed Jesus or truly needed a deity or truly needed a faith by implying if something doesn't happen, that something has gone wrong and you have done wrong. And mm -hmm. that is probably, obviously, I feel very, very strongly because I've seen it way too much. I've seen it in this industry. I've seen it in many industries where that is implied, especially uh, in the U.S., uh, for us, especially in the South, where that is an implication of it, prayer heals all. And, yeah. and then the coming back with, well, that's not God's plan to all these things. Yeah. I'm like, you can't have one or the other. Like that, don't sit here and imply you know God's plan by doing these things. 
Yeah. And then tell me, oh, just playing, that wasn't God's plan. So right. you're wrong. Mm-hmm. No need to say it up front. If you want to pray for someone that's just kindness, that's great. That's, do that. Do that on your own. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do this because that, again, puts those kind of connotations on someone else with expectations that may not be met. And how dare you? You have killed yeah. someone's spirit because of that. Yeah. Again, coming back to the fact that Kia Brown seems like a woman of faith and, and believes that and has and has come to a point that she loves herself. And so I'm I'm glad that she did not have that for herself, who who mm-hmm. could have easily done so. But just as a reminder of what this is, this whole saviorism, this whole level of things that you're like, you can't, you need to be careful. We all need to be careful when implying that you think someone's in a bad place because you feel like you could not handle it. I hate this. I hate this yeah. narrative in every aspect. Just as someone who is a survivor of any type of abuse or victimization in general, to come and be like, I don't know how I could handle that situation is infuriating as if I deserved it or was built to handle it. Right. Don't say yeah. this. Don't do this. This is out of bounds. This is... Uh, ugly is ugly as you want to bless someone it's ugly don't do mm-hmm. it as again you can tell I'm very 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 passionate about this and of course yeah. uh, I'm trying to rein myself in and saying other <laughs> curse words because I've gone mm. through this way too many times I think and yeah. I mean, obviously you have too between all of the things that you grew up as a child and all the things with your father there's too much in that that it's like you your good intentions this is yeah. this is the road leading to hell like this is that that part of it. And yeah. just because you may have one experience or just because you think you know of an experience or you think you could understand an experience doesn't mean you have the right to speak, especially to strangers, especially yeah. to strangers. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely, clearly we could go into this uh, in depth, <sighs> maybe in a future episode, but it definitely, in, for me, it feels like it is implying that you at some time or the other, did something bad, did something to deserve it. And in this case, yeah, I'm thinking my own experiences. But like, there's a holier than thou, like no pun intended, but like I'm better than you. And I'm being the better, bigger person by imparting on you this advice or these prayers or whatever, because you failed somewhere. And that's what's happening with you. And that's the reason it isn't happening with me. And we've talked about that with like the human brain interprets reason where there's often no reason. So just because something hasn't happened to you, that doesn't mean that God was like the reason something didn't happen right. to you. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> right. And we, and we should talk about it in a whole different manner. But when it comes back to this, when we're talking about strangers implying these things and bringing in religion into it and or with cures. She mentioned The Flash. I was very appreciative of this because it is one of my favorite shows. So thank you. Yes. Um, I thought of but you when she, she mentioned that. <laughs> and I was like, oh, here we go. But she also talks about this, this whole cure-all mentality. Yeah. And outside of the pains that she goes through, her, her embracing of who she is and having the good days and the bad days, and we all, we all hit that. And of course, we all want things to be what we expect it to be better. We're like, oh, if we had this, this would be better. Mm-hmm. If we did this, this would be better. If this was here this would be better, which is what she does in this alternate timeline. But it's that narrative that we didn't realize anything was wrong until people told us we were wrong or people told us, uh, people told her she should be sad Mm -hmm. or people told her she can't do this. Mm -hmm. And that's when she 
for the longest time, did not realize there was a difference until that point in time, until she couldn't be the norm by finding a seat because she's uh, because they didn't think about people outside of that. Like, this is the ableist idea is this teaches those who aren't uh, in that same level or aren't able to do these things, you're not normal. This is the normal. And had mm-hmm. we not had these narratives to begin with, that you are a problem to be fixed or someone is a problem to be fixed, they would have never yeah. known or we would have never known. Yeah. And then when we we're faced with that, it's not so much that, that we feel wrong. It's, it's more so that the narrative tells us we're wrong. Yeah, and she brings up the coverage around after when Stephen Hawking died. And we had an episode a while back when Bridget was on with Annie Segarra, who's another activist in the disabled community. And if you somehow miss his coverage, a lot of it was like, Stephen Hawking being freed from his wheelchair and death. And uh, Kia Brown writes, like, that's what you took from everything he accomplished. Like, what about his life was not... (laughs) Like, (laughs) that was the thing? That was what the narrative we're going to run with? Okay, then. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it is like, dude, he's a genius. Well, by standard, he didn't do everything great, but... He accomplished some amazing things. What? I don't think that his biggest fault was having a wheelchair, by the way, either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. FYI. But yeah, mm-hmm. and continuing with that, uh, she talks about the importance of accessibility. And she writes, The ADA Education and Reform Act, which passed in the U.S. House of Representatives as H.R. 620 in 2018, is designed to roll back the rights of disabled people, which require that people with disabilities who wish to report access barriers in buildings and public spaces become essentially code experts, give notice to the appropriate owners, and then wait six months or longer for the business or government agencies to make substantial progress. And that doesn't even guarantee that the issues in question will be fixed. And that's, oh my God. Infuriating. Like there's so many things that happened in that administration. I'm like, this wasn't even necessary. It wasn't, why? Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. And then we wanted to talk about um, Kia's relationship with her twin sister, Leah, and kind of this jealousy around it when they were growing up and resenting Leah's body when she would compare it to her own. Right. And she writes, how dare she walk around beautiful and, quote, normal with her standard and normal working legs and arms while I walked around like a freak. And the older Leah and I got, the deeper my anger took root and grew. I'd pick fights with Leah, call her name, scratch her body by using my stronger left arm and bite down before she could block me. I did this in a desperate attempt to make her as ugly as I thought I was. I became very desperate around the time boys started to find her attractive and asked me to put in a good word with her. I believe that the attention she received made me uglier. And yeah, she talks about specific incidents, uh, about getting her hopes up and realizing they're asking about Leah. And it, it made me so sad because, of course, she comes back and talks about the fact that she had pictured it bigger than what her sister pictured it, but that she was the one who damaged their relationship. And it, it, like she was the mean girl, essentially, mm-hmm. of this relationship. And it, it made me like, oh. Yeah. 
Yeah, because they're twins. Yeah. And it is one of those things where I was reading it and it reminded me of what we talked about recently in like Jennifer's Body, where these like oppressive, like white supremacy, patriarchal systems end up turning, you know, people, marginalized people against other marginalized people or just people in your life. Uh, I'm glad that their relationship is well on the mend and healing and they're very close now. But it is sad when you think about those things in your life where you're like, I was lashing out at the wrong right. person. And she has this whole chapter on jealousy, looking into, yeah. looking into it and why it happens and why it happened in this case. And it's, it is very relatable, but it is very sad because like you were saying, you know, it's one of those things that she kind of learned this hatred of herself. She didn't have it. And then she learned it. And then that separated her even further from like a relationship in her life that had been healthy and nice and would have hopefully been that way throughout when she could have used it. But instead, yeah, you know, um, lashed out. And I think we've all been there where we've taken things out that we are feeling on it ourselves, essentially, but we've taken it out on other people. Right. So she also writes, I often took Leah's lack of concern or care about boys as a personal attack. Leah was single because she wanted to be while I felt I had no other choice. This lack of choice made me angry. And I want to include this because there was a lot. I was recently on um, <laughs> Holly's Star Wars show, Holly Fry of Stuff You Missed in History Class. She's been on the show. I was recently on her Star Wars show, Full of Sith. You can check it out. And in the middle of it, she was kind of like, you know what? I feel like I can tell a lot about people based on their experience with Star Wars. And I can tell you've got a lot of family drama. And I was like, oh. <laughs> as if she said something so deep. But I did, I really related to that because me and my little brother had a huge fight about this very thing where he, he thought that me not being interested in dating was essentially hurting or impacting him. And I never saw it that way. But she also writes about her relationship with her brother and how stressful that's been. And that reminded me of my relationship with my brother. It's just a very complicated relationship that we have. And I often struggle with even talking about it because I, I'm, I'm like very protective of him, but have been very hurt by him at the same time. So it's like, I always feel like I have to give people context to everything. I'm like, before you judge. But yeah, I just, that was a very a personal note for me where I, I felt like I really connected. With that, I also really connected where she kept, she mentioned Mary-Kate and Ashley. <laughs> yeah, I thought about you as well on this one. I'm like, man, she said in all our buttons. Yes, yeah, she is. She said Cinderella with Brandy and I was like, Samantha. And The Flash um, and now Mary-Kate and Ashley for you. Mm-hmm, that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought about yeah. you. Yeah, she also talked about Tia and Tamara. When she was thinking about these and like, this is the twin relationship she thought she should have was these when she was watching, but did want to include this quote because we have been talking about entertainment a lot. The idea that disability is punishment is reflected back to us in TV and movies, thus influencing policy and law. The fear of expressing a part of who you are for fear of backlash is a familiar concept to most marginalized people. The cycle can be broken once we take the step of ending the stigma so that people feel comfortable disclosing and telling worthwhile stories about disability, which can change cultural ideas and policies that negatively affect the disability community. And we've talked about that before, that what people see on TV, there have been studies that show it does impact policy. It impacts the the laws that we make or don't make or what we put money behind, um, which we could have a whole commentary on the the cons of that, but it's true. So this was when she was talking about the importance of good 
representation. Right. I mean, we can talk about that with the pandemic and uh, what's happening right now as uh, the Delta variant is happening and the fact that they are dismissing any of the disabled community and high-risk communities by sending everybody back to school without the option of doing virtual. And again, no one's really talking about it as much as the disabled community uh, or those mm-hmm. who are impacted by it. And that's the unfortunate part is because people are not willing to talk about it if it's not personal to them. Right. So about their children, sure. Children are annoyed by masks. Don't make them wear masks. Oh, children need to be back in school because I don't want them here. To be mm-hmm. fair, that's not, that's not most people. I'm not dismissing the fact that having children at home is hard. I know oh, yeah. this and that those who do not have access. But what I'm saying is those are the larger conversations than those who of the disabled community. So we have to recognize that. Yeah. Just saying. For sure. A lot of putting the comfort first. That's what it gets me about the mass is I'm like, you know what? I get that maybe it's more comfortable for you, but in the end... It's about comfort, right? <laughs> right. You can do it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> That's not a need. Comfortable is not yeah. necessarily need-based. Yeah. Used to getting what you want. I see. Same thing with the right, critical race theory, but hey. Yep, exactly. Erg. <laughs> Erg indeed. And then I did want to include this very briefly before we close out to you. She has this whole thing about like love and how much she wants to find love. Her love of rom-coms that also made me think of you. Uh, I love how she has that, like, Hallmark one where she was like, oh, this is my relationship. (laughs) Like, just picking up on those things. And she writes about, like, never having been in love and the fear of never finding love, of never being in love, of being worthy of love, and how she wants those things. And I was just really moved by it because it's a very personal thing to be open about with. But it's something I also connected, connected with because... I have caught myself wanting those things, even though I identify as asexual or gray sexual. And it, I think it's because I do see it and it looks so wonderful in entertainment. But it was just kind of nice to read about, like, oh, yeah, I, this is sort of what I'm talking about. It's like, it's, right. it sounds lovely. <laughs> I think we all yearn for that. And she she talks about this with her music, too, like her, her moods and what she felt through music, whether it was through Paramore or yeah. any of the old school stuff. She also talks about Demi Lovato and their song, Skyscraper, which actually I loved that song. And it's probably one of the most tear-jerking, like, open raw songs for me as well. So when Kia was talking about it, I was like, yeah, they do an amazing job in this level because I think Demi Lovato was coming through the first uh, rehab stint and just letting those go and just feeling so fragile, but at the same time breaking through all of that because there is, there's something about this level of songs that if they've got the right chords, they've got the right lyrics, and I know you know, Oh, yeah. With your soundtracks, and I do too. And Mm -hmm. like feeling that depth and that level, but that emotion of just wanting to be wanted. And that Mm -hmm. that is a a level that goes beyond just rationale. Like rationally, we know that this is not, maybe Mm -hmm. not realistic. This is not what happens. This is not the real world. But that need, that fever pitch of like wanting to feel the songs in such a depth of emotion. And Mm -hmm. we can, whether it's feeling all of a sudden uh, inspired or feeling so sad and broken or so like empty and alone, which is that Mm -hmm. emo phase. But finding that love, that that being told you're that girl, that special one, that, you know, you're the beautiful, most beautiful woman when the worst state of being and never really actually hearing that to actually find that 
is rare. And that is that one like holy grail, I think for a lot of young girls Mm -hmm. to wish to be the boy band fantasy. Yes. (laughs) You know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I feel that. I hear that. And, And when you feel like there's something wrong with you, when there's feeling like these are the reasons why they can't love me. It's mm. it's this whole level, like trying to go past that. And mm-hmm. how do I get to this? I will say I also appreciated her stories, which makes me disgusted about like trying to online date and all that because I don't necessarily have the same experience, but I definitely had that, oh, you're Asian. I'm sorry, I have a fetish for Asians. So let me go ahead and talk to you and see if you'll do these things for me. And I'm like, hell no, 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 no. Nah. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. yeah. I think it was just, it was also really nice to hear someone being so open and, and hopeful about it. Yeah. And at a older age. And she's not older at all. But I feel like a lot of she's times... She's younger than she, me. So how dare you? Oh, no, no, no. I think she's younger than me. Um, okay. <laughs> she's younger than me. And I'm so young. Uh, I did hear a podcast the other day where I was like, I'm 29. I'm like, what? Oh my God, I've been doing this for Welcome a Welcome to my world. It gets worse. <laughs> no, no, but I think there's a, it reaches a certain age where you kind of close up about that stuff. Yeah. Or you might feel ashamed about like you haven't found it yet. Uh, I think that's definitely changing for sure. But like we've talked about, I thought I was going to be married by like 21 and I'd have right. kids by 26 or whatever. So I don't know. I just really appreciated that. And then I wanted to close on this quote, which I love. I like me so much that when I think about it, I giggle like I've got a crush. When I smile, it feels like the sun is filling up in my body so that when I move around the world, I can light it up. I like me so much now that I know I don't need to be the best or the prettiest person anyone meets. I just need to be me, and that's enough. The world at large is still clinging to ableist and harmful ideas of disabled people. Still, I can't allow myself to let the opinions of a culture influence my whole view the way they did before. I have too much left to do, and I've worked too damn hard to get here. The rest of the world will catch up whether it wants to or not, especially with the work that the disability community and especially the women in our community are doing to ensure that it is happening through hell or high water. Outside of my disability work, I want to write books that mean as much to me as Destin's and Morrison's do. I want my future books to be a light for someone. And I love that. And this was a light light for us. us. Yes. Yes. It was so lovely. Listeners, if you haven't read it, we highly, highly recommend going to pick it up. Right now. Yes, right now. And then listen to this again and <laughs> make more sense. Come maybe. back. Um, yes, come back always. And if you have any book suggestions for our next book club, you can email them to us. Our email is stuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast or on Instagram at stuff I've never told you. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Also the light of our lives. Yes. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 